So today, we are going to be jumping back into our series on contentment. Contentment in a discontent world. If you have a Bible, go ahead and jump into Philippians chapter 4. Almost this entire series comes from that one chapter. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 4 today. And one of the messages will come from a different section of Scripture, but it's so powerful and so important when we're talking about that idea of contentment, of contentment. If you remember back on Easter, we showed a video, and we had a team that we went down to Stanley Marketplace, and we videoed people asking them about redemption. You may remember this video. But we also did a video on contentment while we were there with that. Let's just ask people about contentment. But we had no good material. Do you know why? Because when we asked everyone if they're content, do you know what they said? Yes. Almost everyone to a person said, yeah, I'm content. A few people would say, oh, yeah. I'm not, but almost everyone says they're content. And I've been, like, scratching my head trying to figure out why, you know, talking with people. And I think part of it is because they had a camera in their face and everybody wants to look good on the camera, right? But I think the other thing is we pretend. We're very good, especially with strangers. I know that. But even with acquaintances, even with friends, we put on a good face, don't we? We pretend like everything's okay, that we're happy, that we're content, that things are, are, are all right with us. But the reality is deep down we're struggling. And we've talked about this. We've seen some of the statistics that the level of depression and anxiety in our country are at the highest levels they ever have been. And, and we wonder, well, then why does everybody pretend like they're content when they're not? So that's really what I'm hoping with this series, that you guys can learn and grow in contentment. Because we do put on these faces. Now, there's an old song by Simon and Garfunkel, and I wanted to read some of the lyrics to the song. It's, it's called Richard Corey, and it's based on a poem of the same name. The first verse starts out like this. They say that Richard Corey owns one half of this whole town, with political connections to spread his wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child, he had everything a man could want, power, grace, and style. Then the chorus says, but I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be Richard Corey goes on. The papers print his picture almost everywhere he goes. Richard Corey at the opera, Richard Corey at the show, and the rumor of his parties and the orgies on his yacht. Oh, he surely must be happy with everything he's got. Then the last verse says this. So my mind was filled with wonder when the evening headlines read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. Isn't it the reality we see these people around us and think they have it all. They have it made. I wish I could be them. But inside, in their heart, in their mind, they're struggling. They're not happy. That's why we hear news stories about the most famous athletes committing suicide. Or people that are famous musicians, people in our society, billionaires, struggling with depression. And yet we want to be them. And that's part of the reason why we have this discontentment. So today we're going to learn a specific way in how to combat that discontentment and a specific form. So two weeks ago, if you were here, we learned that uh, we have this habit of worry, don't we? Whenever we have stress internally, things that happen, and stress is a real thing, psychologically, emotionally, physically we feel stressed, don't we? And it leads us into worry, and that's the habit we have. So we learned in that message that, hey, let's replace that habit of worry with the habit of prayer. And what the promise of the scripture was is that God gives a peace to you through that. And that's an amazing promise, and I hope that some of you guys have developed that. I talked with one young lady who said, yeah, you know, I've, I've been doing it, Matt. I, I always thought it was bad to, to pray yourself to sleep at night 
Or when you wake up in the middle of the night, she's like, I've been doing it, and it's awesome. It helps so much. So do it. Okay, it works. Pray. But today we're going to learn that there's some things that aren't just like that internal stress and anxiety we have. It's because we get around other people that we have stress and anxiety. Right? We get around other people and we become discontent. And I think that's one of the reasons why we, we saw that statistic that people in the developing world, in, in third world countries, have uh, 20% of the depression and anxiety levels that we have in this country. But then when those people move here, their anxiety and depression levels meet ours. <laughs> and I think it's because we get around other people. And in our world, it's so easy to see people who have bigger houses, more money, better cars. They're in the career that we want. So when we get around other people, it causes this discontentment inside of us. So how do we deal with that? And that's what we're going to learn today. And I'm going to teach you one simple word that will help you combat that discontentment. One simple word. You ready for it? You're going to have to wait. So we talked about stress and anxiety, some internal things. But what happens when we are around other people, what happens when we're around other people, that these things that we do cause us to be discontented. So I've uh, isolated four enemies to our contentment, four enemies that we have to deal with and fight and learn to combat, okay? And that's what this message will particularly focus on, how to combat these four things. Because it is when we get around other people. And the first one is comparison. Comparison. It's not until you get to this country and you realize, whoa, people have a lot of money. They have big houses. They have nice cars. I want that. We get around other people, and, and we look at ourselves then. And it is an external thing, but then it becomes internalized when we compare ourselves to others, right? I wish I had their family. I wish I had their parents. I wish I had their kids. And we say that, right? I, I wish I had that. And, and it becomes like part of ourselves, and it causes dis- discontentment in our soul. And then we, we start saying things to ourselves like, well, maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I'm too ugly. We tell ourselves these, these lies because we're comparing ourselves to others. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle because what happens is we post the best things about our lives, right? Whether it's in person or on social media, it's like, man, that's the best vacation ever. You think, man, I did a 5K. All right. And then someone climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. They posted it on the peak, right, on Instagram. And you're like, Pfft. We compare ourselves, don't we? And what causes is what this causes is the second enemy, which is envy. Envy. It's not just that we look down on ourselves after comparing ourselves to others, but then we begin to envy what those other people have. We want it for ourselves. We want it for ourselves. I want that house. I want that car. I need that that thing that they have. I need that better phone. Isn't that a crazy thing? You're happy with your phone until the new phone comes out. What's up with that, right? Like one day to the next, what changed? Well, just a phone came out. But you envy it. You want, you want it for yourself. And envy, one of it, the worst things about it is that it causes discontentment. It's literally in the definition of envy. I looked it up this week. It causes discontentment <laughs> when you want what somebody else has. But then there's a third enemy to our contentment when we get around other people, and that is self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves. We say, why do they have it made so easy? Why did they get every advantage and be able to jump into that career? It's not fair. I remember in college, I was the only one of my roommates that were working and paying for school, and all my roommates had their school paid for. Oh, if all my roommates had been working too, I wouldn't have even thought about it, right? But I thought, they, they get their parents to pay for everything. Rich kids, right? And this, this self-pity starts to happen. Why do I have it so hard? Why is it so bad for me? 
And it takes us out of contentment. And there's a fourth one. Now, I didn't know what this was called. And after the first service, someone came up to me and told me. Because I was like, there's got to be a term for this. I asked a bunch of people this week and nobody knew. And I called it absorption. But she said it's actually called transference. And particularly negative transference, for those of you who are in this realm of psychology. But the idea is that we have things, or things happen to other people. And we absorb them into ourselves. (laughs) What I mean by this is that someone else is diagnosed with cancer, and then what do you do? Oh, no, I'm going to get cancer. Someone else's kid gets diagnosed with an eating disorder. Oh, no, what's going to happen to my child? Someone's parents dies. Oh, no, my parents are going to die. Where we transfer, we absorb other people's issues onto ourselves, even though we're fine, our health is good, our kids are fine, but all of a sudden their problems become our problems, and we just begin to worry and stress and the discontentment in our life, right? So these are the four enemies that I've been isolating, and there's more, but I think these ones in particular we're going to address today. How do we combat those enemies? How do we fight them? How do we win a battle against them? Because, here's the thing, we're around people all the time. So what's the one word you need to learn? We'll get to it. So, because this is what I've seen. There's one word that the Bible is going to teach us today that we need to learn to fight and combat discontentment, but... We try other things first. We try other things first. And, and this is what I've noticed. That a lot of people, they, they deal with these four enemies with comparison, and they first say, well, let's just avoid those people. Let's just not run into that person, because that person always makes me mad. Have you ever done this, that you're with a person, and all of a sudden you find yourself bragging and boasting about the stupidest things? And If you're married, you'll go home, and your spouse will be like, why are you bragging about your teeth? But you're with this person, it makes you like, uh, I'm a rival with this person, I'm competitive with it. You know, you're around other people. So, so a lot of times we say, well, let's just avoid that person or those people. But the problem is you can't avoid everyone, can you? That's your boss. <laughs> you have to talk to him. It's your sister, right? You can't avoid these people forever. What are we going to go do? Live up in the mountains by ourselves in a hut? We can't do that. And Jesus told us to be a city on a hill. He told us to love people. And be a light in the darkness. We're not told to go put the light under a bushel, right? We're told we have to live among people as Christians. So then how do we do it? We can't avoid people. You know, some people will then, like, delete their social media accounts. And that may be a good idea. In fact, I would encourage some of you to do that. It's just getting into you into trouble and making you discontent. Studies have proven that, right? But whether you're supposed to do that or not, we can't avoid everyone. We live in this country, we drive down the street, we walk and see the houses, and we think, oh no, I want that, I want that. So, so then another thing people try to do, instead of avoiding, is to empty themselves of negative thoughts. This is real popular right now. Um, to empty yourself. Uh, I, somebody told me this term mindfulness. You heard this? This is a big thing right now. I wasn't taught this in school. I guess they are now. But mindfulness is just like, you need to just be present, be in the moment, and when positive and negative thoughts come upon you, just let them flow over you. And, this okay, what, what I say about this, this is about halfway there. This is halfway good. I'm not trying to make fun of mindfulness. In fact, there are entire religions in our world that are built on this idea. And you know what they say? Suffering isn't real. The negative things in our world are entire religions that are based on this idea. But we're not idiots. We know that there is suffering. There are hard things. There are struggles in our life. And no matter how mindful and present you try to be, there are times that something bad happens. And what do you do then? Just let it flow right off you. Man, that's hard. 
you can do it, awesome. But I don't think we can. I think it's only halfway the answer. And that's why some people have found it kind of works, because you get halfway there. But we need to learn the other half. We need to learn the other half. And that's what we're going to learn today. So I don't think any of those strategies work all the way to fight and combat discontentment. But I do think there is one way that does work, and it's one word. So let's look in our Bibles for the answer. In Philippians 4.4, we read this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Do you know what that word rejoice means? Be happy. Take joy. Is that the word? No. It's not. This is a very good word, and I encourage you to learn this and study it. But this is how Paul starts this section. It's the final section of the chapter of Philippians. He says, rejoice, be happy, you know, find joy in your life. Always, he says. And we read that and say, yeah, that would be good. I think Paul starts out this way because this is the goal. And then at the very end of that section, he says, I have learned to be content in any and every situation. Remember we saw that in the very first week? Something you learned, this secret that everyone can learn and practice with contentment. So he starts out saying, hey, this is the goal, to rejoice and be happy always. But some of you are thinking, well, Matt, if that's the word, that's, we're in trouble because I have a fish that sings that to me. Don't worry, be happy. You know, I hope you don't still have that fish. Throw that thing out. <clears throat> but but it's got to be more than that, right? How do we get there? How do we get to the point where we're truly happy? This is good. Rejoicing is important. It's such an important biblical word and understanding. Do you know the Bible talks about joy uh, 545 times, about joy and merriment and happiness and all those things, and only about 148, if I remember correctly, times where it talks about sadness and mourning and crying and pain and suffering. So the Bible is a book of joy. It wants you to be happy, but the question is, how do we get there? So that's not the word, but we're going to learn it next. So we're going to jump back into Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We looked at this two weeks ago, but it's so good. So I'm going to read this passage again. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this passage, we looked at it two weeks ago, that you have stress, you have anxiety, and instead of letting that drive you into worry, what it should, it should drive you into prayer. And as you get into prayer, it's going to give you peace. So God promises through this habit. But I want you to look at these two words right in the middle, with thanksgiving. So what's the word? Thanks. Pretty simple, right? You already knew that. Like, man, I came here and paid all this money. No, you didn't pay any money. It's free, but, but you're like, is that all? I already knew that word. Yes, you may know that word, but you don't know how to do it right. I'm going to challenge you. You don't. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because what I want you to see is that right in the midst of everything going on, Paul says with thanksgiving. He doesn't say, once your prayer is answered, give thanks. Then you can be happy. He says, rejoice, be happy. How do you do it? While you're praying for something that's really hard and you're struggling, with thanksgiving, he says that right in the middle of it, present your request to God. So this is our big idea today, and I want you to write this down. If you want to fight discontentment, if you want to combat discontentment, you need to always thank God. We combat discontentment by always thanking God. It's just the word thanks. We need to thank God always. And that is going to help us more than any other word we'll ever learn, combat discontentment. We can fight it. Those enemies that are coming against us, comparison and envy and and absorption or whatever you call it. The way we're going to fight those things is by the word thanks, by always giving thanks. And I want you to notice this, always. 
always. So back in our passage, he was right in the midst of those things, right? As you're praying for something that's really hard and you really want God to act, that's when you're supposed to give thanks. That's when you're supposed to give thanks. It's almost before God has answered your prayer, although I think it's good to thank him during and after as well. Gratitude is the right attitude, however you want to say it. But gratitude is always afterwards, right? After you have the good thing. No, we've got to thank God during it. Did you know when Paul wrote this letter, to the, the letters to the Philippians, he was in jail? He was imprisoned because he was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He was under house arrest, basically. He was under surveillance, and he couldn't go anywhere. He was in terrible conditions. And that's when he said, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice always. And that's why he said, when you pray, give thanks. Always giving thanks. And it's not just in this location. There's three other passages I want you to see where Paul says something similar. The first one is in Ephesians. Paul says, always thank God the Father for everything. How many loopholes are there in that verse? Always and everything? Well, it kind of covers everything, right? Colossians 3.17, he says, in all you do, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. And then again, in Thessalonians, Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is for you to give thanks in all circumstances. We're very good at thanking God afterwards, or a lot of us are. Some of us struggle with that, but we're pretty good about it. And that's why you see things on Instagram. Somebody has their first child, they put up hashtag blessed, right? It's like 10 years of, of marital bliss. They'll post up a picture of them at, you know, at their anniversary. Hashtag thankful. We Christians are good at that because when things are going well, it's easy to say, oh, look how good my life is. And I'm not saying that's bad because we're thanking God in that. We're happy. We're happy. And that's a good thing to express it, and we're going to talk about that again in a moment. Paul says always. Always. So here's the thing. If we're supposed to pray, and while we're waiting, do it with thanksgiving, this means that we need to learn to do it. We need to learn to thank God during it. So if you are going into surgery, you're afraid of the anesthesia, you're like, I, I might die in this. We can pray, God, bring me through this surgery. But then we should also thank him and say, God, thank you that you are in control. Thank you that no matter what happens, you're working it out for my good. Thank you, God, that even if I die, that I will have eternal life with you. We can thank God before he has answered the prayers. And what it's going to do is change our hearts. It's going to change our hearts to be more thankful. <laughs> you know, I think one of the funniest things is the most thankful we usually are uh, for something and the most grateful we are for something is when it gets taken away. Right? That's when we realize how much we appreciate it. It's not until your child is lost in Walmart and you find them that you're like, oh my gosh, I love this child so much. Before you're like, come on, get over here. Stop getting that live cereal or whatever, cookie crisp off the wall. You know, but it's when they're lost and then you found, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. When, when your friend leaves, you realize how much you miss them. It's when someone dies that we realize how important they were to us. Why aren't we thankful during it? Why aren't we thankful while they're there, right? So we need to learn how to be thankful always. Always giving thanks. Now let's pull up this big idea one more time. If we combat discontentment by always thanking God, I want you to notice one thing about this big idea. I never said by always being thankful. Did you notice that? 
I never said that. And nowhere in those four passages, passages we looked at did Paul say, always be thankful. What did he say? Always give thanks. Always say thanks. Always give thanks to God. Because the reality is we don't always feel thankful. We don't always feel the attitude of gratitude. We don't always feel happy about what's going on right then in that situation. We don't. But God doesn't command us through Paul to be thankful. He commands us to give thanks. So, so that's why we need to say, hey, this is a practice. This is something I'm going to do. I'm going to learn to do this. It's an action. It's a command. We're supposed to give thanks even when we don't feel thankful. Johnny Erickson Tana, who, by the way, is a quadriplegic, wrote this. God isn't asking you to be thankful. He's asking you to give thanks. There's a big difference. One response involves emotions. The other, your choices. Your decisions about a situation, your intent, your step of faith. It is. It's a step of faith to say, thank you, God, for working in this situation, even though you don't know how, any way how he's going to bring it together for good. It's faith to thank God beforehand. And that's what God is telling us to do. He says, give thanks. Say thank you. Scotty Smith said something similar, a pastor. He says, gratitude is a discipline before it's a feeling, a remembering before it's a rejoicing. And I would add it's an action before it's an attitude. It is. You, you've got to do it before you feel it. You will feel it, and if you feel it right now and you're very thankful and great, grateful, awesome. Thank God. Get into the practice of doing it while you feel it, because there will come a time when you don't. Someone came after me, up to me after the second service and was telling me about their situation. I'm like, man, that's tough. That's hard. He said, how, how can I be thankful? And I said, you can't be thankful yet. You've got to give thanks. And it's so hard to do that, but we have to learn to do that. We have to learn to do that in the tough situation. That's what God calls us to. And then what happens is it changes our hearts and attitudes. And if you're wondering, well, Matt, does this really work? Yes, it does. Did you know there have been some psychological studies on gratitude and giving thanks? There's been a whole bunch. And what I love is happening over the last few decades is these psychological studies come out. There's a headline. We've discovered that gratitude is good for you. It's like, well, the Bible told us that a few thousand years ago, but nobody's been paying attention. But these psychological studies, there's been numerous ones that have found that people that actively give thanks have better health. They have a better outlook on life. I mean, that would pretty be obvious. But they also sleep better. They have less anxiety. They have less occurrences of depression. Adolescents that practice thinking or being grateful they have, are more engaged in school, have less anxiety, less depression. You have more longevity in your life. You'll live longer. It's pretty incredible. So it's been proven now psychologically that saying things, giving things, is good for you in lots of different ways. Because when you do that, it changes your heart. It even helps your relationships. Some studies on marriages have said that marriages are healthier and better thriving. They're more likely to forgive each other if they say thank you more often. So we can do this. One of the most interesting studies I saw was that people who are religious, so that they have a higher power that they think, those people have even better outcomes on all those things. Do you know why I think that is? I think it's because we need someone to think. I feel really bad for atheists. And if you're in here and atheist, I feel sorry for you, because you don't have anyone to think. When you're happy, what do you do? 
on Thanksgiving each year and you're trying to think, what am I thankful for? You're like, thank you, me, for working so hard, providing all this food on the table. I am so good. Do you know what that's going to do? It's going to puff you up and make you an arrogant jerk. It is. We need someone to think. And here's the thing. C.S. Lewis said it uh, a long time ago. He said that a joy is not complete until it's expressed. I think it's true. And that's why we praise God every week. We're in the habit of doing that. So if no other time in the week, if you're complaining all week long, you come here and you have to sing, well, God is good. His relentless love follows me, I guess. We have to say it. We have to say it. And we have to get into the habit of saying it. Not just once a week, but all the time. We have to get in the habit of saying it. Because a joy needs to be expressed for it to be fully felt. We're the happiest when we get to say how good it is. When you have that delicious, amazing burger, you take a picture of it, don't you? You put it on Instagram. This is the best burger I've ever had. And you do that because a joy is complete once it's expressed. We have to say how beautiful that person is. We have to tell everybody about how great things are. It just like, comes up out of us, right? So we need to do the same thing by thanking God. And I think there's something so important in that, that we realize who this stuff comes from. I remember once, and apologize to any kids in here, but I remember once I got a gift from Santa, and my younger brother didn't know who Santa was. I got this gift, and I loved it, and I was like, who do I say thank you to? I can't say thank you to Santa, right? And it kind of hurt me. I wanted to say thank you, because when we do say thank you to the person, it really helps us. Where was Santa, right? We need someone to thank. We need that person, and when we do, it fills us with even greater joy. It changes our hearts. It begins to form that attitude in our hearts, that thankfulness, that gratitude in our lives. Uh, And if you're here and you're saying, well, Matt, I struggle with this. This is hard. Yeah, it is. That's the thing. I told that person this morning who said, you know, this is a struggle for me because I don't feel thankful. I told him, like C.S. Lewis said this too, he said, what we need to do is dig ditches in the desert so that when it does rain, we can catch it. Okay, we have to go through this practice of thanking God even in the midst of it while we're struggling, while it's hard, so that we receive the blessings when the time comes. And it changes our hearts. It makes us more content as we do it. As we do it. Now, I know that this is hard. And I know that some of you are saying, well, Matt, my life is really hard. You don't know what it's like. I don't. I don't know what you're going through. But I do know that learning to say things while you're going through it will change things. Proverbs 15.15 says this. Every day is a terrible day for a miserable person. But a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Which one do you want? I want the feast. I want the party. I want the joy, the celebration all the time, no matter what's going on. And this is what we learn to do when we give thanks. So if you're like, well, Matt, my life is hard. Our lives are still way better than at any time in human history. And really way better than people around the world. Did you know that if right now, You have a roof over your head at night. You have clothes on your back, food in your fridge, and $20 to your name. You are richer than 80% of the world. 80%. Did you know if you have a Bible or access to a Bible, you are more blessed than a third of the world's population? 
If you can read that Bible, you're better off than 2 billion people on our planet who are illiterate. Did you know that, here's an amazing one, if you have a little bit, if you're healthy, just even kind of healthy, you're better off than 1 million people who will die before next Sunday. You put Matt. But here's the thing, even when things are really hard, even when things are really hard, like Paul when he was in prison, that's when we are supposed to give things. Because I know some of you are hearing that, and, and you're still saying, well, Matt, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't. But we can always give things. In the book, uh, The Hiding Place, by Corrie Ten Boom, she tells a story about her time in a concentration camp. Corrie was a Dutch lady during World War II, and she and her family were Christians. They were believers in Jesus. For that reason, they hid Jews in their home until they were caught. And they were sent to the concentration camp. And Corrie and her older sister, Betsy, were in the concentration camp. And because they were believers, um, one of the first days they were there, Betsy said, we need to thank God. And she said, thank you, that they had a roof over their head, that they had some food to eat, that they had these thin, hard, rough blankets that would keep them warm at night. And she also thanked God for the fleas on those blankets. Corey wrote that she's like, well, it was easy for, uh, you know, I could thank God for the roof and the food and all that stuff, but I couldn't thank God for the fleas. It's too much for me. Well, then the two of them decided that they wanted to help give hope to people in the concentration camp. It was terrible. The conditions were awful, and, and they were Christians. They wanted to tell people about Jesus, so they had a Bible. Thank God for that. And they decided they were going to have a women's Bible study in the concentration camp. But the problem was is the guards were always coming by, and if they caught them with a Bible or caught them praying or praising God, they would be possibly arrested, or they were already arrested, but they'd be beaten, tortured, maybe even killed. But they did it anyways. And as they were meeting these women, studying the Bible, praying, praising God, no guards came by. They couldn't figure out what's going on. Why are the guards not coming by only during this Bible study? And then they figured it out. Because of the fleas. They had too many fleas that the guards didn't want to go anywhere near them. And then even Corey could thank God for the fleas. No matter what we're going through, no matter how hard the circumstances, in all things we should give thanks. Not just when we feel it, not just when things are good, but all the time, even beforehand. Thank God actively through the situation. So God is calling us to, if we want to combat discontentment, if we want joy and happiness and peace in our hearts. That's what we have to do. You know, the Bible tells us an incredible promise in Romans 8.28. It says that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It's an incredible promise that no matter what happens, all things are God can work in them for your good. Now, I do want to preface this by saying it's for those who love God, those who are believers. But if you are a believer, God says no matter what happens in your life, I am working in that thing for your good. And it's hard to believe, to be honest. If we really felt that, it would be so easy to say thank you all the time, wouldn't it? We struggle to believe it. But I think if there was ever a time... Where it would have been hard to believe that was the day Jesus died. If you had known Jesus, you would have realized he was an incredible man, the best man to ever live. That he loved people and served people and gave his life away. And then they gave him a fake trial. 
They beat him, they imprisoned him, they spat on him, and then they took him out to be executed, even though he had done nothing wrong. And if you were one of his friends, if you were one of the disciples, you would have said, how in the world could God bring something good out of that? But we know that because Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. And through that death, all of our sins were placed on Jesus, and he offers grace and forgiveness to all of us. That Jesus' death on the cross, God even used that for good. And I think that's the reason why Jesus gave thanks. Do you know that's what he did? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he broke it, remember, he said, this is my body. He knew he was going to die and be broken. What did he do? He gave thanks. Jesus, in the midst of that, knowing what was going to happen, thanked God. He knew even through that, it would be for the salvation of the world. The worst thing that had ever happened in all of human history, God would use it for the best good. So no matter what you're facing, we can have thanks. We can give thanks. And that contentment will come. It will follow. But we have to learn to practice it, to do it. To combat discontentment, we have to give thanks to God always. Always give thanks. So I'm going to have the band come up right now. And I know that a lot of you, like me, have spiritual Alzheimer's, right? We hear a great message, we get moved, and then we forget it, right? The next day we're like, what was that message about? So I want to give you something to practice this week. This is Bobby's idea. And in your bulletin, there's a yellow card. If you have that, can you pull it out and hold it up in the air? Okay, this yellow card, it has some verses on one side, and then on the other side, it has a space for you to write seven things that you're thankful for. Seven things. Because I want you to develop this practice of being thankful by giving thanks this week. I want you to practice it. So I want you right now to write down seven things that you're thankful for. Write down the good things. I'll write down that I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for my wife. Thankful for my daughter. Thankful for all the things I have. But I'm also thankful for the hard things too. Write down some of those hard things and say, God, thank you that you're working in this. And what I want you to do is take these seven things and focus on one each day this week. First one for Monday, second one for Tuesday, and you get it. Right? So I want you to just take a few moments right now and write seven things down. So just take, take a moment. I'll wait. I'm thankful for crying babies, too. I really am. I really am. I got one at home probably right now crying. She's tired. Let's write down those things that we're thankful for. So I want you to take those things and keep it with you so that you can see it every day and find a time each day that you're going to thank God for those things. You don't have to stop after one week, but I want you to do it at least for this week to get in the practice of saying thank you. That one word is going to help you combat discontent. And let's pray. Lord God, um, I am thankful for this church. I'm thankful for my wife, my daughter, our home, that, that we live in beautiful Colorado, Lord. But I'm also thankful for the hard things and the difficult things that you bring my way because I know that in them you're working to help me learn and grow, that you can bring good in my life out of it. For all of us in here, I pray that you would help us to find contentment as we learn that one word, just to say thanks at all times, in everything. 
for the person in here that's really struggling, that they just do not feel thankful at all, Lord. I pray that you would work in their heart as they begin to practice giving thanks. For all of us, Lord, give us that heart of contentment, of joy, of peace. That's what we're longing for. Help us learn that.